Good evening. An election nail-biter in Peru favors the leftist candidate. Is NATO still relevant? And the filibuster, a remnant of slave society. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Wednesday, June 9th, 2021. And with more than 98% of ballots counted, socialist candidate Pedro Castillo continues to lead the race for president of Peru with 50.2%. That's according to a report from the South American nation's electoral office. The latest report posted moments ago shows Castillo ahead of opponent Keiko Fujimori by more than 92,000 votes. WBAI host and Code Pink activist Medea Benjamin is in Lima. She reports the streets are calm. Surprisingly calm in the city uh, because the city is very much supporting Keiko Fujimori, yet outside the offices of Pedro Castillo, you have a lot of people starting to come and camp outside there. Uh, They tend to be working class, indigenous people, poor people. But for the most part, life in the city goes on as normal. It's really in the countryside where there's a lot more agitation, where people are saying, where we're going to take to the streets if Pedro is not uh, the next president. It's a reflection here. They say Lima is not Peru, and that is certainly true. Medea Benjamin in Lima, Peru. Castillo, whose campaign symbol is a pencil, is a teacher and union leader. He emerged in the first round of voting as the favorite of rural Peruvians who've suffered under the COVID-19 pandemic. His opponent, Keiko Fujimori, is the daughter of a former president currently in prison for corruption and human rights abuses during a dirty war against a revolutionary guerrilla group known as Sendero Luminoso or Shining Path. Keiko herself is facing corruption indictments. CUNY professor Gerardo Renique is author of Peru, Time of Fear. He says the trauma of the dirty war is still felt in Peru. What is happening here in Peru is, is a rejection of the neoliberal model of governance and the economy that was deepened by the pandemic. COVID-19 have devastated the country. The amount of poor people have increased between 10 and 15 percent during the last year. And you can see it in the vote, the places that have witnessed the most important development of extractive industries, mining or oil, the rejection of the Fujimori family. The legacy is still felt in Peru with this constitution, that very authoritarian and neoliberal constitution, very similar to the case of Chile, the legacy of corruption. Keiko Fujimori now is not only running to be the president, she's running not to go to jail. She's indicted of money laundering, 70 millions of dollars for her campaign. A person running for office in order to keep from being indicted. It's not only Keiko Fujimori. At least half of the people in her list, you know, are trying to, you know, not to go to jail. They're being elected to Congress, so they have immunity. What they call it in Peru, the capitalism of crooks, you know. Why so many people voting for her? This is one of the dirtiest political campaigns in proven history. Every single media outlet, every single newspaper, every single TV station, every single reality show, every single influencer has been campaigning for Keiko Fujimori. The soccer national team, that was a big scandal. The president of the Peruvian Soccer Federation is an ally of Keiko Fujimori. He forced most of the members of the team to campaign for Fujimori. 
people want to reject that, they're sick and tired of that. And Fujimori forces have control Congress and they have indirect ministers if they didn't like a minister or they dismantle the judiciary in order to protect themselves. People are sick and tired of that. But on the other hand, this anti-communist campaign has been persuasive. What is Shining um, Path about? I'm not I'm, like they're Maoists, I guess. And I just don't understand a people's movement that presents itself as people's movement over and over again being associated with massacres of the people. I never could understand that. Well, man, we have Pol Pot. <laughs> yeah. You know, and we had Stalin. There's been cases in the media recently. They're coming back. There was another massacre attributed yeah, to Yeah, that was part. There was a group, Shining Path Resistir shining path resistance that they kept the armed struggle those were remnants of shining path very small in the area of narco trafficking an outshoot of that group it's still active in a coca producing area they use the title of shining path but they're basically a narco trafficking group they're to the service of one gang or the other now the the peruvian currency is dropping like crazy and because of neoliberalism, most of the basic staples in the food come, are imported. A hundred percent of the wheat. That's another possibility, an economic coup. And finally, the new way of coups in Latin America, like in Bolivia or in El Salvador, it's a congressional coup. There are rumors of all that, and those are possible scenarios. And that's CUNY professor Gerardo Renique. He's author of Peru, Time of Fear. Castillo says he's already been congratulated by other South American presidents ahead of his official win. And here in the United States, I should say in Europe, President Joe Biden opened the first his, his first overseas trip of his term today with a declaration that the United States is back. The president's first stop was a visit with U.S. troops and their families at Royal Air Force Mildenhall. On the tarmac, Biden said his goal is to bolster the U.S. relationship with Europe. See the alliance, make it clear to Putin and to uh, China that... Europe and the United States are tight, and the G7 is going to move. But despite Biden's claim that NATO has empowered America, not everyone agrees. A professor of history at the University of Arizona is David Gibbs. He says, as we approach the 2021 NATO meeting, the expansion of the Atlantic Alliance has made the world less safe. The whole logic of NATO was that it was intended to dissuade or repel a Soviet invasion of Western Europe. Whatever merit that claim had during the Cold War, it ceased to have any merit at all when the Cold War was over in 1989, 1990. The Warsaw Pact, the uh, Soviet alliance in Eastern Europe was ended. In 1991, the Soviet Union was ended. It was erased from the map. And so its original purpose was obliterated. And by reasonable standards, one can question the value of having an alliance that didn't really have a function. I think for a long time, NATO was an institution in search of a function. One could raise the question of whether or not it might have been better to simply let NATO just slip into history as the Cold War slipped into history, but that didn't happen. And there was an effort to revive and sort of recast NATO for the post-Cold War era, not only to revive it, but to expand it, which is exactly what had happened. One could wonder as to whether or not that has worsened international security by creating new security problems that didn't exist before, most notably the U.S. contest with post-communist Russia. Why do we have it? What is the purpose? I think the most plausible...
plausible explanation is a combination of bureaucratic inertia. Once you create a vast bureaucracy, and NATO has always been to some extent a vast bureaucracy, it's very difficult to put large bureaucracies out of business. They, when their old job is done, they look for new jobs, and that's exactly what NATO has been doing. Another one is that NATO has built up a vast array of vested interests around it on both sides of the Atlantic, including the uniform military of the United States and of the European countries, as well as weapons manufacturers who supply them. A retired Admiral Eugene Carroll uh, from the U.S. Navy said in the early 90s that one of the principal reasons you've had an effort to sort of revive NATO at that time was that so many generals in the United States military and admirals in the Navy had earned their stars through NATO's service. They didn't want to give up the jewel in the crown of the U.S. overseas presence, which was a source of institutional influence by the military and a source of prestige for the United States. Is it really worth the vast expenditure of money that one puts into this sort of thing just to make the military happy and enhance American prestige overseas? These are very expensive institutions. One wonders if the money couldn't be better spent doing something else with it, especially since... NATO does not enhance security. Most of the U.S.-European rivalry with Russia that today threatens a new Cold War arose out of the expansion of NATO. Was Trump right when he said that these people should pull their own weight, the NATO countries, and uh, what are we there for? One winces at the idea basically of saying Trump is right about anything, <laughs> but in this particular case, he did have a point in questioning the value of NATO. Just because Trump said it doesn't mean it's wrong. It's illogical to think that way. It is true that NATO really had no legitimate purpose after the Cold War. Whoever questions it, whether it be on the right or the left, is correct to do so. Trump's main consideration here was that the European states weren't paying enough for NATO and that they should pay more. There was a larger issue that he did raise, which is whether NATO's all that important. And if the first time since NATO was created, he did raise the question of whether or not NATO really is a vital U.S. interest or not. And that probably did have a positive effect. However, one may despise Trump as a president, as many of us, including myself, do. He was correct to raise that point. David Gibbs is a professor of history at the University of Arizona. And closer to home, President Biden has ended talks with the Republican-led negotiator on big infrastructure packages. Biden walked away from talks with West Virginia Senator Shelley Morpedo after not being able to bridge the $750 billion spending gap between the Democratic and Republican proposals. He's reportedly reached out to 10 senators who are working on their own bill as congressional Democrats consider moving ahead without GOP support. Christina Onstead has more. Senate Democrats say they're taking two approaches to passing President Joe Biden's infrastructure plan. Now that he's ditched negotiations with Republican Shelley Capito. Here's Senate leader Democrat Chuck Schumer. We will not be able to do all the things that the country needs in a totally bipartisan, in a bipartisan way. And so at the same time, we are pursuing um, the, the uh, pursuit of reconciliation. And that is going on at the same time. With a narrowly split House and a 50-50 Senate, the White House faces political challenges pushing its priorities through Congress with Democratic votes alone and centrists in the party like Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin. But Senate budget rules allow legislation to be approved with a 51-vote threshold rather than the 60 votes typically needed to advance a bill past a Republican filibuster. I'm Christina Onestead. 
Thank you, Christina. And, and, and as Christina said, that is West Virginia Senator Shelley Capito. And the New York's and New York's newest representative in Washington, Jamal Bowman, has called fellow Democrat Senator Joe Manchin, the new Mitch McConnell, for his opposition to the party's expansive voting rights reform bill and for his support of the legislative filibuster. Over the weekend, Manchin got unexpected pushback, not from a Democrat, but Fox News host Chris Wallace, who took issue with Manchin's opposition to a commission to look into the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol. I mean, let's just take the nine, uh, the, the, the idea of creating a 9-11 commission to investigate the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol. Uh, Republicans blocked that. Uh, Senator McConnell, the head of the Republicans in the Senate, says that he's 100 percent focused on blocking the Biden agenda. Uh, question, aren't you being naive about this continuing talk about bipartisan cooperation? I'm not being naive. I think he's 100% wrong in trying to block all the good things that we're trying to do for America. We be a lot better if we had participation. And we're getting participation. But when it comes time to final vote, um, I disagree with with uh, Leader McConnell on this, a minority leader on, on this issue, that he puts politics before the policies that I think we need for our country. I'm going to continue to keep working with my bipartisan friends, and hopefully we can get more of them. But in an article posted today on the website Counterpunch titled Joe Manchin Sucks, the Senate is Absurd, author Paul Street says the problem isn't just one Democrat, but an outmoded constitution giving power to the most backward states at the expense of the majority. Manchin is being something of a proxy for a, a whole bunch of centrists and corporate Democrats. They get to blame him. And they know full well that the We the People Act isn't going to go through. And they know full well that the uh, Protect the Right to Organize Act, which is a really big deal. Both of these are passed by the House. If you're a center Democrat, you want to be able to go to your progressive base and say, well, we tried. We tried, but we just couldn't do it because of this um, filibuster threats and because of Joe Manchin, but probably don't really want to pass these things in the first place. The funders don't want to see a lot of the stuff. Conservative pressure groups that matter in their jurisdictions don't want to see these things. Manchin gives them some cover. My piece today is about more than the filibuster. It's about the overall absurdity of the Senate. How is the United States Senate absurd and what could be done to change that? The tradition of the filibuster is just utterly preposterous. It literally embodies an absurd Monty Python-esque level of minority rule. You already have a Senate where constitutionally nothing can be passed unless you have 60 votes. The filibuster prevents a bill that a reactionary, racist, right-wing minority in, in the Senate doesn't not only want to see voted, but even heard in the halls of the Senate. And what they used to do is like read from the Bible or Charles Dickens for like 25 hours and literally physically prevent it from being heard. Manchin also said that he would might support the idea of a stand up filibuster where they're forced to actually. What that means is that they would try to throw a monkey wrench in the filibuster by making it go back to what it used to be where, yeah, people had to stand up and read forever. If these reactionaries have to stand up and read a whole bunch of stuff to block a uh, voting rights and civil rights and police reform and gun reform, then they'll do it. They did it before and they'll do it again. So there's not much to be said for that. Here's the thing about the filibuster. It's not in the Constitution. It's a practice. It's something that senators agreed to do as a check on democracy in the 19th and 20th century. We wouldn't be in this mess if we didn't have the absurdity, which unfortunately is in the Constitution and goes back to slavery. No other country on earth is working with a charter 
from the age of Louis the Sixteenth and the horse and buggy era of the late eighteenth century. But we are, and 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 we are still with a document which says that Wyoming has as many senators as California. Wyoming is less than six hundred thousand people. California has forty million people. If California had the same population to senator ratio as Wyoming, California would have more than one hundred and thirty senators. If Brooklyn was a state and had the same population to senator ratio as Wyoming, Brooklyn would have nine senators. Same for Chicago. The Bronx would have five. This is ludicrous. It is an open violation of the elementary democratic principle of one person, one vote. So, you know, people can hate on Joe Manchin all they want. I think he deserves their hatred. He's something of a proxy for other Democrats, A and B. He's functioning with an institution that by its design is fundamentally anti-democratic. I deal was cut with uh, the, the Jim Crow South in the 30s to, so that they would finally let the Wagner Act and the Social Security Act go through, but only, but only with guarantees that a lot of the New Deal legislation would not apply to black workers and agricultural workers in the South. Author Paul Street, his article, Joe Manchin Sucks, the Senate is Absurd, is at counterpunch.org. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Continuing reports of unidentified flying objects or UFOs by military pilots have increased interest in the idea that we are not alone. Thousands have contacted UFO investigators with reports of sightings and a pulse of interest in the phenomenon not seen for years. We're going against the wind. The wind's 120 knots to the west. Oh, thank you. That's not an LNS though, is it? It's not. That is an LNS, dude. Well, if there's a good thing... A researcher at the Center for UFO Studies and a board member of the Mutual UFO Network is Rob Swedek. He agrees there's something pretty weird out there. It started back around 1947, and we've now logged tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of sightings. Obviously, you know, you and I both know that the vast bulk of these can be explained as IFOs, identified flying objects. So it's an airplane. It's 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 a satellite. It's you know something seen under an unusual condition that otherwise has a prosaic explanation. But there's a residue that remain of sightings that cannot be explained. And that's been true since the very start of the modern age of the phenomenon. And these objects, whatever they are, I don't know what they are, but I could speculate. I have opinions, but I can't prove what they are. But they do act in consistent ways. And they have always acted in consistent ways from the time first sightings were logged. They move oftentimes at extreme speeds and then come to a dead stop. They'll make a right angle turn in the air. They'll just suddenly appear in front of you, then shoot straight up in the sky and vanish. They have unconventional shapes. They don't have any obvious sources of power or propulsion to cause them to move the way they do. And they move in seemingly intelligent fashions. That has been consistent for all these years. And all the stuff that's now come out recently, yeah, with the sightings from the Navy in 2004, are just the tip of the iceberg because we've gotten military sightings for all these years since the end of the 40s to now. So these sightings were nothing new. Radar lock-ons are nothing new. Why do you think there's so much attention now? It hit a theme with that New York Times article back in 2017 where it was revealed that not only did these pilots have their encounters, but the existence of this 
project, the AATIP, in the Pentagon to look at UFOs was brought out. That sort of caught people by surprise, and it was almost like they'd forgotten that the UFO phenomenon existed, and here was something new that could suddenly be looked at. The government was seemingly taking it seriously. We haven't had a letdown really since 2017 in terms of the interest in this aspect of the subject. Civilians sightings keep going on all the time. I tallied up how many sightings just MUFON, that I'm on the board of, got last year. UFO cases last year were over 1,500. They looked through those and investigated them. There were 267 or so that they couldn't explain. The sightings are going on every day. Without going too deep into the weeds... What do you Mm -hmm. think is going on here? Here you've got me on speculation. Everybody is speculating all over the place. All I will say is my very simple opinion on all this from having looked at hundreds and thousands of cases and talked to people who have seen these things. The best explanation that fits is the non-human intelligence. That's what it comes down to, in my opinion. Do I know where they're from? No. Do I know why they're acting the way they do? Absolutely not. Aliens act in a way that humans don't necessarily act in. I can't explain their motives, why they're here, why they don't do one thing and not another. Just that these things seem to have an intelligence or intelligences behind them. J. Allen Hynek, the founder of the Center for UFO Studies, used to say back in the 1970s and the 1980s that there's going to be a 21st century science. Well, we're now in the 21st century. I would just update that slightly to say we're going to have a 22nd century science and a 23rd century science, and that we're going to discover things we don't currently know now. Rob Swaytek is a researcher at the Center for UFO Studies and a board member of the Mutual UFO Network. Giving more weight to the expression, closer to home, Life is returning to normal as COVID-19 cases drop in New York. One sign of this return to normalcy is the return of in-person sporting events. Angela Palumbo has the story. Much of New York State is reopening. So many of our favorite activities were upended during the last year. But the increase of vaccinations in eligible people and low COVID-19 positivity rates are allowing a kind of return to normal. One activity we lost during the height of the pandemic was attending sporting events. But... That's changing. Large arenas for our local teams are now open and allowing their stands to be mostly filled with excited and eager fans. It was just so surreal because not only did I think I was never going to get back to a game, probably till a lot later when the shutdown happened, but I did never, never did I think it was going to be that packed. Matthew Kim is a recent Pratt grad from Brooklyn. He went to games three and four of the Islanders playoffs against the Boston Bruins in Nassau Coliseum last week. He's gone to many hockey games before the pandemic shut down the arena. And for him, being back in the bubble during the playoffs was emotional. We were still fairly confident we weren't going to get back to games probably till late 2021, maybe even later than that. We had no clue with the vaccine and the rollout. And it was just, it was tough, but I think... Looking back on it now, if you would have told me that I would be at Nassau in 2021 in mid-May, I probably would have told you you were crazy, but I wouldn't have traded it for anything for sure. The high number of New Yorkers that are now fully vaccinated is a major reason these arenas are opening. 54.8% of the state's total population is fully vaccinated. According to New York State, the COVID positivity rate has dropped to 0.6% over a seven-day average. These New York arenas have rules. They separate vaccinated and unvaccinated people. You have to show proof of vaccines to enter the fully vaccinated sections and a recent negative COVID test to enter the arena if you are not vaccinated. Governor Cuomo feels confident that these numbers and regulations allow for safe attendance at these sporting events. Great teams will say that uh, one of their greatest assets are their fan base. 
And when the fans are with them and the fans are cheering, it's a totally different feeling. And it gets your energy up and it gets your adrenaline up. So they're part of the game, especially a New York crowd. Justin Moore is a gym teacher from Harlem. He went to a Nets game at Barclays Center last week and says being back at a crowded arena after the initial horrors of COVID is emotional. The fears he had during the pandemic were hard to shake when arriving at his first crowded event in over a year. It was very emotional because at first, for the first 15 minutes, I felt paranoid because I would think, like, we're not used to being our close around one another, even though last year everyone was so accustomed to that. So it was definitely very emotional. Like it was very, very paranoid. But once I really got into the group of the game, once everything started getting better, like throughout the game, I started to ease my comfort. Morris sat in a fully vaccinated section at Barclays Center. He says going to this game was a once in a lifetime experience. Once I started getting comfortable, it was definitely a worthwhile experience being in the playoffs, the Nets winning at home, and the entire stadium just kept chanting Brooklyn, 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 and it was just very emotional. The Knicks also opened up their stadium for a playoff game. Ella Ejinubi from Long Island went to the game and says being back after all this time made her feel a strong sense of community alongside fellow New Yorkers in the crowd. I think New York, New Yorkers, it's like, at this point, it's like an ethnicity, like we are New York. People are very, like, nationalistic about New York, lack of a better word. And I think New York showed out and we showed our colors. We cheered from the beginning to the end, whether it was for our team or against the opposing team. Thanks to dropping COVID cases and an increase of vaccinations in New York, the reopening of in-person events is the first step to a return to normal. Angela Palumbo, WBAI News, New York. Thanks, Angela. And that's some of the news for Wednesday, June 9, 2021. The news is produced by Linda Perry and Angela Palumbo. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson from New York City. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.